0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roner Park area.
1: All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would, and open them to Matthew chapter 16. And this evening, we will continue our study on the doctrine of the church. Our text verse tonight is Matthew 16:18. And if you haven't already found that, then I know that you're familiar with it. In this scripture, Jesus said, And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, we've learned that that is the first mention of the word church in the New Testament. And in that statement that Jesus made, we find the promise that he gave that he would establish a church, but also we see that he gave a guarantee that although it would be assailed by the devil, by the flesh, and by the world, that his church would never fail. That in all ages since Jesus established his church, that it will be here And there will always be New Testament churches of like faith and order to the one that Jesus started. Now, a little bit later on in our studies, we're going to take the opportunity to talk about church history and church perpetuity, that there always will be on earth a church that's doing the Lord's work until he comes to take the church out of the world. And, of course, that comes at the second coming of Christ. In our lesson last week, we talked about the true New Testament church And there are many churches that claim to be true churches, but they're not true unless they're verified by certain characteristics. It must be a church that began at the right time. It must have begun in the right place. It must have started with the right person. It must have been made up of the right material, with the right officers, with the right polity. That's the government of the church. It must have the right gospel, and it must have the right mission. And without going into detail about all those different characteristics, let me just say that we do believe that Baptist churches that still remain true to the New Testament meet all of those different uh, different things that are necessary, the necessary criteria to be called true churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that there are a lot of churches today that have dropped the name Baptist. They're Baptist churches, but they've dropped using the name. And I don't really see anything wrong with the name. Uh, I want to hold on to the name. And if anybody really wants to take the time to look at this historically, they will find that there have been churches that uh, believe the same things that we do in Berean Baptist Church today. And we have a presence in all the centuries to go back to the time of Christ. But that's a subject more directly related to the history and the perpetuity of the church. And as I said, we'll have the opportunity to take a look at that a little bit later. This evening, I'd like to talk to you about something else. I want to speak to you on the nature of the church. And I'm going to be a little bit more technical than usual tonight, so I would encourage you to take some notes so you can remember what's been said. What exactly is the church? Well, that's a, that's a very appropriate question, and there are plenty of wrong answers to that question. Uh, there are many different ideas that people have about what the church is, And so as the first exercise, as we look into this this evening, we're going to look at the uh, different uses of the word church. You have New Testament uses of it, and you also have uses of the word church that we have in common everyday speech. So that's number one on your outline tonight. We're going to look at the uses of the word church. Now, the problem that we have in identifying the nature of the church is that there is no theory that adequately explains all the different uses of the word church that we have in the New Testament. Uh, Buell Kazee makes this statement in the introduction of his book entitled, The Church and the Ordinances. He said, "'It is certain there is a church. The questions which arise about it seem to demand a plausible and scriptural answer. Is it local and visible or general and invisible?' Can it be both at the same time? If there be two churches, both local and universal, both visible and invisible, does it not follow that one must be in constant confusion, trying to adapt oneself to the obligations and activities of both? If the church and the ordinances belong together, would not the existence of an invisible church in some way affect the visibleness of the ordinances? What about the church and the family of God? What about the relationship of the Holy Spirit to the church as compared to his relationship to the individual believer? Does every believer belong to the church? These and many other difficult questions arise as one studies the scriptural interpretation of the church. Now, that statement shows that we're not tackling an easy subject. There are a lot of differences of opinion about what the church is And what that's done has led many Christians to just blindly take somebody's definition that they have invented and just accept that without really doing any investigative work into the New Testament to see what the Bible really says about the church. Well, what we want to do is we want to find truth, and so we're going to examine the Word of God to see what does the Bible actually say about the nature of the church, so we're going to start that by looking at the ways that the word church is used. Now, first of all, we would start with the historical use of the word. And the historical use covers the whole range of the activity of the church throughout the ages from the time that Christ started it that we find here in Matthew 16:18, all the way up until this present time. So the historical use covers 2,000 years of church history And when we talk about the church in that way, we're not really talking about any particular church or any denomination, and we may not speak of just true churches only, but also false churches that have arisen during that time and have claimed to be true churches. And so you'll often hear me speak of the church that way, where I just use the word in in the sense as uh, it could be a true church or a false church, and even as I say that, I'm using the church in a generic sense. But when we do that, or when I do that, I in no way imply that a false church is a church in any sense of the word. And so when we look back to the founding of the church, and we look at the rise of Catholicism in the later centuries, and then uh, in the 15th, 16th century, you have the Reformation that began. Then after that, you have churches that claim restoration. All of those are included in the historical sense of the use of the word church. The second usage that we have is the denominational use. And denominational is when we take all the churches that belong to a specific core set of doctrines and put them all together. For instance, we talk about the Roman Catholic Church. And when we say that, we're not talking about uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton that's down here on Snyder. But rather, we're talking about all churches that hold Roman Catholic doctrine all across the world. And in the denominational sense, we use the word Presbyterian. We may use Methodist. We talk about the assemblies of God and so on. And so we're not referring to a particular church, but to the entire mess. And you can italicize mess in your notes if you're taking them. We're referring to the whole mess that calls themselves churches, those that are denominated Presbyterians, Methodists, and many others. And it's popular... To refer to the Baptist Church in that way, to say, "Well, we're 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 part of the Baptist Church," whereas strictly speaking, we can never refer to ourselves as the Baptist Church. We are Baptist churches, so it's not really proper to use the word "church" in the denominational sense when you're speaking of Baptist. Now, thirdly, there is the institutional use of the word. And that's the usage that we find in Matthew sixteen eighteen, the scripture that we're studying tonight. And the institutional use is a generic use of the word in which we're referring to the church as an institution in society say that's the way the word is used here in Matthew 16:18, And there Jesus was not referring to any particular church, such as the church at Jerusalem, which right then he was in the process of forming, but he was talking about the church as an institution in society. That's called an abstract use of the word, or also again, a generic use of the word. And that's demonstrated by passages such as Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul speaks of the husband and the wife and compares that to the church and compares marriage to the church. He says in Ephesians 5:23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Now, in that passage, Paul is not speaking about a particular husband or wife. He's using the term generically to speak of marriage, where there is a husband and a wife that's in a marriage. Now, the, 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 that particular usage of the word does not become concrete until you make it refer to a particular marriage. For instance, Jorge is the husband of the wife Mina. Now he put a concrete sense to the term marriage. Well, here in the New Testament, in the book of Ephesians, Uh, Paul is using the, the term in a generic sense. So in that particular scripture, he's not talking about the church at Ephesus, but he's talking about the institutional church. Then fourthly, there is the local visible use. And that is by far the most common usage of the word church that we find in the New Testament. So that when the Bible says specifically the church at Ephesus, or it speaks of the church at Antioch, or the church at Rome, Uh, there's a particular congregation that is in mind, and these are believers that can assemble together, they can worship together, and they covenant together to carry out the Lord's work. Now, that local visible sense means that the church is concrete, that, in fact, that you can have the entire church where it's capable of meeting together in one place. Now, for example, in Acts 13.1, the Scripture says, Now, there were in the church that was at Antioch, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. So it says there the church that was at Antioch. And so there was a group of disciples that were able to gather there. They're assembled. They're listed here. Some of the teachers and uh, preachers in that church are listed here. And if we were to read this particular scripture in this way, now there were in the assembly that was at Antioch, then we would be dead on there with the meaning of the word church, that it does mean assembly. And that's the most important part of the meaning of the word church, that it does mean an assembly. Now in Acts 19, 32, 39, and 41, the King James translators retained the word assembly when it's evident that the group of people that it's talking about there were gathered together and they were not a church. So in Acts 19.32, it says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and the more part knew not wherefore they were come together. Now that scripture is talking about the riot that was at Ephesus when Paul was preaching there. And you see that the King James translators instead of translating the word that you normally see church in the new testament they retained the meaning of the word assembly verse 41 it says and when he had thus spoken he dismissed the assembly so this was a gathering of people and it's evident to us that these are people that are have met together and the same word that's translated church in other places uh, is, is used therefore an assembly Now, again, here we see it in this particular place that it's not a church, but the idea of an assembly is still retained in the meaning of the word. Now, catalog all that in your mind for just a few minutes, and we're going to come back to that. I want to show you why it's so important that we understand what the New Testament actually means when it uses the word church. Now, fifthly, there is the invisible use of the word. And the invisible actually stands opposed to the meaning of the Greek word that's translated as church. Now, the invisible sense says that the church can exist in a, in a spiritual sense, that whether assembled or unassembled, that all Christians are in this mystical body that's called the church. And nobody really knows what that mystical body is because the New Testament doesn't explain it anywhere. It's never described in the New Testament. Now, we're going to tackle that theory of the church in just a few minutes, and I'm going to show you why that, that cannot be the meaning of the word. Even the institutional use of the word stands opposed to the church being used in an invisible sense. Then, sixthly, there is the eschatological use, and this is maybe perhaps the most interesting use of the word because this refers to the church in glory. So it's not a church that's actually in existence today, but it's the church in prospect. And this is when the entire church is taken out of the world. When all those that are members of the church have been raptured out of the world, there is this gathering in heaven of all the redeemed people. Now, we see that in Hebrews 12, verse 23. that says, But ye are come unto Mount Zion, unto the church of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, And to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, even in that usage of the word, we see a real assembly. We see people assembling. And so I don't know how that you can have an unassembled assembly, and yet that's the idea that most people have about the church. So that's the way, the different ways that the word church is used. Some of those are okay, and some of them are not. And then I might add that there are others that referred to the church as the building, and we don't find that usage of the term anywhere in the New Testament. So we may, we may say something like this. We tell our children that we're going to go to church, and the thing that they have in their mind is they're coming over here to this building here on Country Club Drive, and that to them is the church. Well, there is a sense, of course, in which we're speaking about coming to a location, but properly understood when we talk about going to church, we're talking about going to see the people that meet together as the church, because the church is the people and not the building. Now, to go a little bit further, we look secondly at the meaning of church. And and I've read many different definitions for this and I think the best one that describes what the church actually is is the one that we have in our own statement of faith. But that statement is a little bit uh, broader than what I want to talk about tonight. So instead, I want to give you a definition that was uh, given by Edward Hiscox in his book, The New Directory of Baptist Churches. And, and if you're ever interested in getting something that you know, tells you a lot about church and church work and how we're organized and all those different kinds of things... You might want to get a copy of that. Um, maybe you'll be able to see it on the Internet. Um, I think you can actually download it. It's Edward Hiscox's book, The New Directory for Baptist Churches, and it was written about, uh, I think, somewhere around 1890s in and, and that area, 1890s to the beginning of the 20th century. But here's what he says. He says a Christian church is a company of regenerate persons baptized on a profession of faith in Christ, united in covenant for worship, instruction, instruction, the observance of Christian ordinances, and for such service as the gospel requires, recognizing and accepting Christ as their supreme Lord and lawgiver, and taking his word as their only and sufficient rule of faith and practice in all matters of conscience and religion." Now, I like that definition because I think it hits all of the highlights that we need, but especially it points out to us that there is a real assembly of persons, people that have covenanted together, people that actually come together in order to observe Christian ordinances. And, of course, we're talking there about baptism and about the Lord's Supper, uh, two subjects that we'll talk about a little bit later on in our study. So how did we actually get the word church? Well, that's another good question. Uh, all words come from some place, at least we think that they do. So what is the derivation, derivation rather, of church? Where do we get the word? Well, we don't actually know where we got the word, uh, the English word I'm speaking of. Edward, Edward Hiscock says, The word church is of uncertain derivation. English, church. Scottish, kirk. Anglo-Saxon, Sirik, German, kirsch. Danish, Kirki, Swedish, kirka. Russian, Zirkow, It's used as the equivalent, if not derived from the Hebrew hall, Latin curia, and has usually been derived from the Greek kuriakon, belonging to the Lord. This is, however, disputed by good authority. But ecclesia is the accepted equivalent Greek word used in the New Testament and translated church. So although we don't know exactly where we got the English word church, we do know that in the New Testament it is translated from the Greek word ekklesia. And uh, the most important way to determine what does ekklesia mean is to understand what did the Greeks mean when they used that word in the New Testament times. Now, just as a side note to this, William R. Downing makes an interesting observation about the use of the word church in Acts 1937. In that scripture it says, For ye have brought hither these men, which are neither robbers of churches, nor yet blasphemers of your goddess. Now there the King James translators use the word churches, but it's not translated from the word ecclesia. So it's not actually robbers of churches, but it's robbers of temples. And why the... King James translators would have translated that word as churches in that place maybe due to the idea that some retain that you can actually refer to the building in some senses as being a church, the the place or the building. So that's a case where you have an an English word that's substituted in, in the Bible where the meaning is obviously not the church and not even assembly as it normally means. Now we see that then ...in the definition of this Greek word ekklesia. So we look at that next, the definition of ekklesia. It's a compound word. It's a Greek word. It's a compound word. And it's composed of ek, E-K, which means from or out of. And then the second part of the word comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to call out. And so the word means to call out from. And that's the place where many people would like to stop in explaining what the word means... And they say that ecclesia simply means that it's a a people that's been called out or separated from another company. Well, Christians are certainly called out of the world. We're separated by God to be a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Although we're in the world, we're not of the world. That's what Scripture says about us. But the word ecclesia does not just mean to call out. It means to call out and to designate an assembly of persons. Now, we saw that a moment ago when we looked at Acts chapter 19, where the King James translators correctly used the word assembly instead of church for ecclesia. Now, that's the way that the apostles would have understood the word. T.P. Simmons writes, "...it is rashly unreasonable to assume that Christ and the apostles took up a Greek word that had a well-established meaning and gave to it another meaning without one word of explanation." Consequently, we find that in every passage in the New Testament where ecclesia occurs, it can be taken in the true sense of assembly. There's not a passage that demands a broader sense. Now, that's extremely important when we look at the idea that the church in any sense could be invisible, such as the universal invisible theory states, if that's true then the New Testament has given a meaning to the word ecclesia that was new to that time and left unexplained anywhere in the Bible. So then how would the writers of the New Testament have known what the word meant? How how could anyone understand what it actually meant when they hadn't been told that the everyday common use of the word had been changed to mean something else? The word denotes an assembly of persons, that these are real people that actually come together. They can come to a real place. They can see each other. They can touch each other. They can work with each other. They talk with each other. Even when Jesus used the word in the institutional sense that we have in Matthew sixteen eighteen, he followed that up in Matthew chapter 18 that we looked at this morning by referring to something that has to be an assembled group of people. In that scripture that we looked at this morning, Jesus said, "'Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, "'go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. "'If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. "'But if he will not hear thee, "'then take with thee one or two more, "'that in the mouth of two or three witnesses "'every word may be established. "'And if he shall neglect to hear them, "'tell it unto the church. "'But if he neglect to hear the church,' let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Now, it would be extremely difficult to go and tell the church something if the church is a mystical, unassembled assembly. And so we have to strongly consider what did Jesus and the apostles mean when they used the word church? And to wrench out of it a meaning that's that's foreign to anyone's understanding just simply does not make sense. Now, to show you further that The New Testament must be talking about a local visible assembly instead of a universal invisible one. thirdly, Thirdly, we need to look at the metaphors for the church. How does the Bible actually speak of the church? What kind of examples does it give? Now, I hope that you're paying attention and you understand what I'm talking about here because we are confronted all the time with this idea that the church is this universal, invisible, huge, mystical thing that everybody that's a Christian is a part of. And as I'm trying to show you here, there is no sense in the New Testament where that could be true because here we look next at the metaphors that are used for the church and they show us very clearly that it could not be that. So the the Scripture uses figurative language to help us to understand the church, and the figurative is always based upon the truth of the literal. And what you don't want to do is try to base your truth in the figurative, or you'll end up in a lot of trouble. So we have three metaphors that are used for the church in Scripture, and they show us the visible nature of the church. Now, the one that you hear most often is that the church is compared to a body. Now, you all, we always say that. We hear that. We compare the church to the body of Christ, or we say it is the body of Christ. And that's language that's taken directly from the scriptures. And so that shows us that the church has to have a corporeal existence. Now, corporeal simply means that it is material, that it has a physical substance opposed to the imaginary and the spiritual. Now, it's interesting that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And he said, Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, listen, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. And yet when it comes to the metaphor for the body of Christ, that's the church, most base their opinion about what the church is, not in the reality of a physical body, but in the spiritual they switch to something spiritual and say that the, the church is a mystical, spiritual entity when Christ is clearly showing us that a body has to have some form or some substance to it. Now, in First Corinthians 12, the the church as a visible body is glaringly apparent by Paul's example. Now, I'd like you to turn to First Corinthians 12 so you can sort of peruse the passage as I talk about it. And there are... There's a lot that's in that chapter, and we don't have time to go through it all. But I want you to notice some key parts of what Paul says about the church here. In 1 Corinthians 12:27, he says to these believers, Now, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. Now, keep that thought in mind. We are all members in particular of the body. And those of you that are familiar with the passage, if you just want to look through it there, uh, the verses preceding this, Paul talks about the members of the body, and he compares us to hands and feet and ears and noses. And he says we're not all the same part in the body. We're referred to as different parts because God needs a variety of different works that are done in the church. And if we were all one part, the point that he makes is that we wouldn't be able to fulfill all the needs of the church. So we're different Not all, we're not all the same, but we are a body and we are a unified whole. We have a relationship with each other. I can see what you're doing. You can see what I'm doing. You recognize when there is a need that needs to be filled in the church. And you can, you can put yourself in the place where you can fill that need. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 26. He said, and whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, how is it possible that you could suffer with another member if the body is actually an invisible body that's scattered all over the world in all kinds of disassembled pieces? Now, if I go out and I find an arm in the parking lot, I wouldn't go out there and say, you know something, I found a body in the parking lot. No, I'd say I found an arm. Where's the rest of the body? It belongs to a body, doesn't it? So, and likewise, we we can't sympathize with people that we don't know anything about. We can't help someone when we don't know who they are. We can't rejoice with them when we don't know anything about them at all. And so it's impossible to have unity without a body that can assemble. I mean, how would we ever discuss our differences? And and how would we ever come to right scriptural conclusions? And have you ever noticed how much diversity there is in the world among all these different groups that call themselves Christians? We disagree on things like baptism and the polity of the church. We disagree about the Lord's Supper. We disagree about church discipline and about church membership and and dozens of other subjects that we don't agree on. I don't know if you noticed, but when I walk, I'm the same as you. My body works together. My legs alternate in order to take steps. If I want to lift something, my, I bend over and my back does the work that it's supposed to do and my arms say, well, I don't think that I want to participate at this time. Well, no, that doesn't make sense. The idea of a universal body that's not together can't hold up. The metaphor doesn't hold true. It can't be invisible and universal in scope. Now, look also at verse number 28. And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets... Thirdly, teachers, after that, miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. Now, there he's he's talking to the church at Corinth. Then he writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He says that he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, does that sound like disassembled pieces, a mess of parts that cannot possibly work together? Who does the work of ministry? Who's edified by the work of pastors and teachers and deacons? Well, this is the whole church unified, working together in perfect harmony. Now, that scripture comes out of an epistle, the epistle to the Ephesians, where most people believe that you can find the universal invisible church. But what we actually find in Ephesians is not a universal invisible church but the church used in the institutional sense. So this is not a non-assembling church. The metaphor of a body simply cannot work with something that's disassembled. Then secondly, in Scripture, we have the church compared to a building. And this is a metaphor that's just as easy to see. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, Paul said, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building." And then Peter said in 1 Peter two five, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, what do you think of when you think of a building? Years ago, I used to build some houses, and before I would build a house, I would start picking out the materials. I'd go get the things that... I wanted to use for the building if you go to home depot in one place there you'll you'll find a stack of tubifours that can use for you can use for the studs and the walls. You'll find another stack over here of uh, number two yellow pine that tuba uh, tens that you can use for floor joist in another place you'll find sheathing that you can use on the roof or used on the subfloor of the house. In another place, you find doors and windows, and you find light fixtures, and you go another place and you find the appliances. In another place of the store, you find the carpet. Another's got the electrical and the plumbing. But who is it that goes into Home Depot and says, Well, there's my house. There's my building. Well, no, we don't think of it like that. We don't think of a, a building this way. We don't think of the lumber yard when we think of the, of the house. We think of the whole structure put together, all the pieces in one place, and that makes up your house, your building. You don't get the same picture from a pile of lumber over here, and a pile of, or a, or a bunch of appliances sitting over here, and the carpet someplace else. That's not the picture of the house. It's the house when it's assembled and, and all put together. So when Paul said to the believers at Corinth, he said, you are God's building. Well, how could he have meant anything other than that church that was assembled there at Corinth? How could he say to them, well, you are God's building. I just wish I could see all of you because you're scattered from here to Jerusalem. And call them the building. Well, that doesn't make sense. A universal invisible church makes no sense if you compare it to a building. It has to be local and visible and assembled together. Then we have a third metaphor used in Scripture for the church, and that is the church is compared to a bride. Now, we can't find those exact words in Scripture where it says the church is the bride of Christ, but by putting together different texts, we can see that the church is compared that way. Now, there's a considerable amount of debate about who is and who is not in the bride of Christ, and I'm not going to tackle that subject tonight. But in the strictest sense... I don't think that the church can be called the bride of Christ except as it's glorified and perfected. So that would mean that the church is not the bride right now, but it will be the bride in heaven. In Revelation 19:7, we have this scene in heaven. It says, "'Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, "'for the marriage of the Lamb has come, "'and his wife hath made herself ready.'" And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now, it appears to me that there we're speaking of the church in prospect, glorified, as we talk about in Hebrews chapter 12, that it is arrayed in righteousness that's clean and white. And so in heaven, the church is the bride of Christ. Well, what would we conclude about the nature of the church from that? Well, I think we would see that, once again, ecclesia must mean a people that's been called out and are together. These are people that are together in heaven. They make up the bride of Christ. They're not invisible. They're not scattered all over everywhere. They're in one place exactly where God said that they would be. So the, the idea of a bride can't work if you have in your mind that the church is a universal, invisible entity. Now, we're just about out of time here, so I thought that I would close with some words that were written by Buell Kazee in his book. And I want to give you some excerpts to think about in light of all these things that we've discussed. He's writing about the universal invisible church, and this is what he says. He says, The concept lends itself to abuse and subtle deception. This view of the church has no real practical value. It is admittedly popular... And for the undiscerning seems to solve many problems about the church, but it has the result of of releasing people from the practical responsibilities of life as a believer. Multitudes who believe in the universal invisible church concept relax from particular responsibilities as believers. In their mind, there is no church to oversee them, exhort them, point out their needs, or provoke them to industry. They are in the big church of their imagination. Why worry about attending visible churches or whether or not these churches are preaching the truth? Somebody will carry on. In fact, the church itself will somehow carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. When a man faces Jesus, he does not face an imaginary God, one whom he has formed after his own mind. He faces the real God in a visible body. But when men faced God in this form, what did they do with him? Yes, they crucified him. This is the story of the local visible church. As long as the church is invisible, all the different brands of religion can find a make-believe harmony under its broad canopy. They are all in the great invisible church, so why argue about the differences? Each can have his own. But when we set before them the local visible kind of church, where they must take a stand and be identified before the world as committed to the doctrines of salvation, where they must be responsible for definite commitment to service, a church which requires a covenant relationship spelled out in certain practical aspects of conduct, a church whose services they must attend in support with their money, there arises a resistance to its reality. It's too exacting. "...too definite and real. It requires bodily presence, not just spiritual. It's the body of Christ in the flesh where it can be seen and communicate, the incarnation of the Lord himself in fellowship of real, live human bodies and spirits. For many, it's all too literal and imperfect and visible. It's much easier to live in a dream church than in a real one. The slacker cannot hide in the mystic folds of a visible church, for there are none." The sinner can be found out and judged. This visible church is committed to the word of God and not to the varying desires of fleshly members. It's committed to a doctrine that identifies it from false churches. The worldling is not at liberty to make this incarnate presence after his own idea of God. He must conform to the word. What is the reaction to those who do not wish to conform to the life of the local visible church? They crucify it as they crucify its head, and seek hiding in what appears to be the monstrosity of the universal invisible church. The inventors of the so-called universal invisible church concept provide a dream church where the believer can escape the conflict found in the local church and yet enjoy the complacent comfort of feeling that he's in a higher spiritual relationship with God. In this way, the church concept becomes a great offense against the churches of God. Now, there's a lot to consider in that statement. I didn't even read everything that he had to say. But what is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is the nature of the church? What is this thing that Christ said would never succumb to the gates of hell? Well, we go back to what Hiscock said. It's a local, visible body of believers, a company of regenerate persons, baptized on a profession of faith in Christ, united in covenant for worship, instruction, the observance of Christian ordinances, and for such service as the gospel requires, recognizing and accepting Christ as their supreme Lord and lawgiver and taking his word as their only and sufficient rule of faith and practice in all matters of conscience and religion. And let me summarize all of that and put it to you simply like this, that when the Berean Baptist Church meets together, all of us together here are the body of Christ. This is a the composite whole of the body of Christ that meets right here. There is no mystical entity out there anywhere. Another church, a true church, that meets together where members have covenanted together and they're in another city in California, another place in the United States, another place in the world, if that is a true church holding to the doctrines of Jesus Christ, that is a complete body of Christ in the locality where they are. So they can carry out all the business that the Lord requires them to do. They meet together and they observe the ordinances. They baptize people. They partake of the Lord's Supper together. They evangelize. They bring people in, make new members, and even start New churches that are also the body of Christ in their particular locality. So we don't think of the church as all Christians all over the world are in this one mystical, invisible body because there can't be any such thing. It's not a body. That's a misnomer to call it a body. And I think the metaphors that we see in Scripture uh, might plainly prove that. It can't be a body, it can't be a building, and it can't be a bride if it's scattered all over the world and can never assemble together. The true church is an assembled body of people, just like we have here in Berean Baptist Church tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the study of your word and how important this is for us. We need to get this right because if your church is the plan and the program that you have for the world in this age, as we're waiting for you to come back, and if you have vested authority in the church to do your work, to carry out your ordinances, to make disciples, and to teach them all things that you have commanded, then we must know what is a true New Testament church. And Lord, help us to understand and see this, that, that this body here, we are, we are the body of Christ here, and we can carry out everything that you've told us to do. We can do everything that the New Testament commands, and we are your church. Lord, help us to understand this better, to realize who the church is. Thank you, Lord, for the study that we've had tonight. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronnet Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Roanoke Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.